It's good to see everybody this morning. I know we have one of the link groups uh, went to Hershey Park this weekend, so we're missing, we're missing them, and that should make you want to go to link group. Uh, but I'm sure they had a great time. So we're in the last part of our series um, called This, Not That, God's Life Hacks. And, you know, that, that book where the guys like eat this, not that, and they both kind of look the same because they're fast food, but really when you, when you dig into the numbers, they're very different. So he's like, eat this, not that. That's kind of what we're doing in our spiritual life as we kind of start this year, as we start 2020, we're, we're kind of saying, look, as we get into this year, we face forks in the road, we're going to want to choose this and not that. Because even though sometimes on the surface they look very similar, we're kind of unpacking how different they really are. And this is where we've been in the series The first week we talked about how obedience will probably require sacrifice from you, but sacrifice isn't always obedience. So if we're choosing between the two, put obedience first. And the same with mercy over judgment. Not that, you know, there isn't judgment from God, but the truth is we as followers of Christ want to lean into mercy. And Beth did a fantastic job talking about how we lean into mercy and how we release the judgments that we've made on other people. Last week, uh, Tyler did a great job of talking about character over charisma. Not that it's wrong to have a, you know, to have charisma. Tyler has charisma, you know. Um, but, but how we want a foundation on character. How the, the fruit of our life needs to be born out of a solid character. And this morning, we're going to talk about foolishness over wisdom. And so the whole theme this morning is, is that we, we, we want to end up being really foolish in our lives. At the end of our lives... It should look like a pretty foolish journey that we went on. And of course, by that, I mean godly foolishness over worldly wisdom. And it talks about this over and over and over again in the Bible, that we need to choose a godly kind of foolishness over what the world tells us is normal or wise. This is where Paul talks about it. He's writing to the Corinthians. This is at the very beginning of his letter. You have to understand, when he thought of things like some of the most important things he could write, he wrote this at the very beginning. He's like, this is, this is priority number one for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, this, this idea that God would come in the flesh and then die on the cross and rise from the grave is, is kind of a foolish notion to, to a lot of people in the world, but those of us who have experienced the reality of this in our own lives, know that the power that we walk in for a transformed life comes from the cross. He goes on, he goes, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? So you can see he's talking to two groups here in Corinth. He's talking to the Jewish community, but he's also talking to the pagan community. People came out of paganism, out of that Greek culture that celebrated the philosopher, And they became Christians. And then people came out of the Jewish customs and became Christians. So he kind of has the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians sitting there together. And he's saying, where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And I love this. Watch this. He says, Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But here's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, that's you and me, whether you're Jew or Greek, it's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Isn't that good news? And then he concludes in verse 27. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It's kind of like the passage that Tyler read this morning uh, from 2 Corinthians 12. You know, the weak things. When we are weak, we are strong. The foolish things of the world. The weak things of the world. God says, give me the foolish ones. Give me the weak ones. And let me show them my foolishness. Because my foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. Let's break down this a little bit more. I, uh, you know me, maps and charts and all that. So I brought a chart with me. So with this in mind, he's speaking to the, to the Jewish community, the, the Greco-Roman culture, and then also he highlights God's kingdom. So in the person of wisdom in the Jewish tradition is the teacher of the law. Right? They were the person who had memorized the Old Testament. They were the one that was seen as, as really smart, really intelligent. In fact, Paul was one himself. He was a Pharisee. And in the Greco-Roman culture, it was the Greek philosopher, the people who sat around and really, you know, we had to study this. I was almost a, a philosophy minor in college, and so we studied the sort of the ancient philosophers, you know, Plato and Socrates, and they, 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 they thought, sat around and, and thought deep thoughts, you know. That was their deal all day long and taught. They had all these people following them and they were teaching them. They were seen as the wise one. But Paul says, you know who's really wise? It's the one who believes in Christ. The one who actually believes this foolishness of the cross. How about evidence? Well, in the Jewish tradition, a lot of the Pharisees were asking Jesus for evidence. Prove that you're the Messiah. They had these certain ideas about what the Messiah would do. The Messiah would come in. He'd have an army. He'd set up the throne of, of just like King David, right? He would overthrow Rome. He would establish the kingdom. And so they kept saying, show us a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus, that you're the Messiah, the one that's going to overthrow Rome and, and become the king and establish this great kingdom that we've been waiting for. And he showed them so many signs, so many healings. He was casting out demons, walking on water, you know, turning water into wine, multiplying the fish and the loaves. He showed them so many signs, but it wasn't the signs they were looking for. So they kept asking for more signs, even after all of those. They needed signs. Well, the Greek philosophers wanted something different. They wanted wisdom. See, in their idea, they were shifting in the Greek culture, the Roman culture. There was a pantheon of gods, right? They believed in, in many gods. But then they started to shift. The Greek philosophers started to shift a little bit, and they started to believe, what if there was just one god, but their idea of god was this transcendent god? He would never, he would never condescend. He would never come down to earth. In fact, that's where the Gnosticism came from. It was this idea that, look, God is so untouchable, and he would never come down to our, our mess. So even the way they thought that God created the world, they said, well, God would never create the world because the world's a mess and muck. He would never get his hands dirty like that. So he created a, a being that's a little lower than God who created another being that's a little lower than God who created another being that's a little lower than God, and that guy created the world. Because they couldn't comprehend a, a transcendent, awesome, holy, powerful God who knew everything and was all-powerful, and who would actually get his hands dirty. So this idea that God would come in the form of a human was absurd. Definitely not wisdom. But what's the evidence in God's kingdom? The evidence in God's kingdom is faith. 
Seems backward, doesn't it? Hebrews 1 says, the assurance of things hoped for, right? Or the evidence of things that we can't see is faith. Faith itself. And then the cross. For the Jewish people, this was a massive stumbling block. See, he wasn't supposed to be crucified by Rome. He was supposed to conquer Rome. And of course, this idea that God would become human was absolute, utter foolishness to the Greeks. To many people today in our culture, really smart people, professors, people that know their science, people that know their stuff, they look at the gospel and they think, that's just foolishness. But in God's kingdom, this foolishness is the power of God. This idea that Jesus died on the cross is the power of God. It's where all the power is generated from. That God became man and was crucified. And so we preach Christ crucified. That's why we preach here at Horizon. That's why we preach Christ crucified. Because Christ is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. All right, so Paul says, not only is that true, but I have lived out that truth in my own life. In 1 Corinthians 2, the very next chapter, here's what he says. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom like the philosophers would or like the teachers of the law would, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. There it is again. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Isn't that interesting? He goes, look, I I was a Pharisee. I was even a Roman citizen. I could have come to you like the Greek philosophers. I could have come to you like a teacher of the law. I could have come with a lot of eloquence. I could have wowed you with how persuasive I was. In other words, I could have come with a really amazing TED Talk, and you would have been blown away. And I decided not to. Instead, what I came with was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. In other words, I came in weakness, and when I proclaimed the gospel, you felt something stir in your soul. And when you felt it, you need to know it wasn't because of my eloquence. It was because of the power of God. The Spirit was moving in the room. And I would lay hands on people, and you saw them get well. And I would cast out demons. And the power of God was among us. And that's why you know the gospel's true. Not because I was eloquent but because of a demonstration of the Spirit's power. When we embrace godly foolishness over human wisdom, our faith rests on God's power, not on someone speaking really well, not on someone articulating the gospel really well. It's on the Spirit showing up in power. In fact, godly foolishness is dependent on the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's dependent on it. In other words, Godly foolishness is saying this, God, if you don't show up, we got nothing. We got nothing. And I'm here this morning to tell you the same thing. If God doesn't show up this morning, it's worthless listening to me talk. It's worthless. It's about the Spirit showing up in power through his own word. That's what it's about. That's where our faith should rest. Not because someone spoke very eloquently. So let's talk about foolish faith. 
2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. It means we believe things we don't see yet. It's a, there's a foolishness in that. Let me, let me show you why. Because our world says this, right? Prove it and I'll believe. Have you ever heard that? That's what they said to Jesus. Prove it. They don't believe. I, I want to believe. Just prove it. Prove Jesus is this person you say he is. Prove that God is real. Prove, prove it. And that's not how God's kingdom works. It's actually the opposite of how God. Here's how foolish faith works. Godly foolishness says believe and then I'll prove it. It says, Peter, come to me on the water. Did Peter say, prove it and then I'll come? No, Peter stepped out of the boat and as soon as he did, God proved it. And he's walking on water towards Jesus. This is how the kingdom works. This is how godly foolishness works. Believe it and then God will show you. The foundation that we start with is faith that doesn't see. That's the very nature of faith, is that we don't see it at first. Like all of us, when we, when we decided to give our life to Jesus, we couldn't yet see how he would transform our life. But we took that step of faith to believe that he could, and then he began to. You see what I'm saying? But it took that step of faith. Hebrews talks about faith in chapter 11. It starts with this. Verse 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what? What we do not see. That's what faith is, assurance about something we can't see yet. Confidence in something we can't see yet. This is what the ancients were commended for. There's a big list of like great men and women of faith that's listed after this in Hebrews 11. And none of them really got to see the thing that they believed so strongly in. They, they, they just were commended for their faith. Look, we're not going to get to heaven, and God's going to go, yes, you believed it, and then it came true. Way to go. What God's going to say is, wow, you believed it even when you didn't see it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That's the stuff of faith. Way to be foolish. Because of verse 6, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is what he enjoys, us stepping out in faith. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What's the reward for earnestly seeking God? Do you know what it is? There's a bunch. Let me give you a couple. Number one, it's him. He's the reward. Intimacy with him is the reward for believing when you can't see. Closeness to him, believing when you can't see. He's the reward, but there's another reward, and it's that after a while, you believe, though you couldn't see, after a while, God starts showing you. Faith becomes sight. The foundation we start with is faith that doesn't see, but it doesn't stop there, guys. It's not just like blind faith. Here's what happens. God adds evidence to that faith, and faith becomes sight, so we begin to see the things that we couldn't see before. We believed them, but we couldn't see them yet. And then suddenly we start seeing them. And it adds to our faith, and our faith grows. Are you guys with me on this? This is the journey of foolish faith. This happened to Peter, James, and John. They were Jesus. It was his inner circle. He had the, he had the crowds, right? He, he sent out the 70, but he had the 12, and then he was even closer. These were his best buds. These were the ones that really believed in Jesus. 
They knew this is the Messiah. You know, they were, they were confident. This is the Messiah, Peter, James, and John. This was his inner circle. And Jesus rewards their faith with sight a couple different times. Let me show you. In Luke 8, this synagogue ruler came, and his daughter was sick. Jesus doesn't get there in time because he's busy, you know, healing somebody else. And then the, the daughter dies. His daughter dies. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. And then what's he say next? I'll prove it. No. What's he say? Just believe. Take the step of faith, Jairus. Don't be afraid. Believe. Take the step of faith. And she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except who? Peter, James, and John, and the child's father and mother. All the crowd that was mourning and wailing, he's like, I need all of you out. There's just a few that are going to have their faith become sight. It's my inner circle and the parents. That's what happens. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that he was, she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. And her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Why do you think he told them not to tell anyone what had happened? He wants people in that place where they're stepping into faith, and then faith gives birth to sight. Let me give you another example. Peter, James, and John again. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with them who? The 12? No, he didn't take the whole 12. He left them at the foot of the mountain. He only took Peter, James, and John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Uh, My son Nate said something this week that gave me this passage. Thanks, Nate. But here they were, believing he's the Messiah. Then all of a sudden, their faith becomes sight. What did they see? They saw him glow. They saw him become transfigured before them. Then they see Moses and Elijah. They're like, whoa, what's going on here? Now, granted, Peter didn't know what to do. He starts setting up, like, altars for them, and, you know, he's freaking out. But still, their faith became sight. Was it just blind faith that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah? No, it was faith that became sight. So let me give you five phases that I've noticed in my own life of this Foolish journey, this godly foolishness and how foolish faith kind of forms in our life. And if you have anything to write down, I want you to write this down. If you don't have anything to write down, when I get done, take a picture of the screen. And all of you are like, whew, yes, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Phase, (laughs) Phase number one, call this early fruit. It's an act of little faith followed by surprising fruit. What do I mean by that? Well, let me break it down this way. Let's talk about giving and tithing. So someone says, look, God is your provider. If you're willing to be generous with your money, if you're willing to give to others and tithe, he's going to provide for you. If you surrender your finances to him, he will provide for you. And you hear that message and you're like, man, I got no faith for that. I do not believe that. I'm not great with money anyway. 
But you take a chance. You have little faith, tiny faith, barely any faith, mustard seed faith. And you're like, all right, I'm going to do it. And you decide to give. And then what does God do? This big provision comes in like a crashing down. You're like, I can't even handle this provision. It's so big. That's this faith. What I don't want you to do is to think it's going to happen every time like that. Because what this phase is, is like daffodils. Do you know daffodils are coming up right now? It was like 15 degrees a couple days ago, right? What are daffodils telling us? Spring is coming, but spring's not here yet. This early fruit phase is telling you spring is coming, but it's not here yet. Let me give you another example. You step out in social justice to serve the needy. And you're like, man, I have little faith for that. I don't know. I'm nervous. I don't know what to do. But you step out. You take a chance. You volunteer with Araminsa or you go to Nicaragua. You do something. And something big happens, like some big moment happens. And you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. Why isn't everyone doing this all day long? I'll tell you, it's phase two. I'll tell you, that's why people aren't doing this all day long. Because what's coming is phase two. But it's big fruit for little faith. This happened in my life with healing prayer. Very in the early stages of God churning in my life to pray for people that they would be physically healed, I had very little faith for it. And he put something on my heart. I prayed for this person. This radical healing, physical healing happened to them. And I'm like, awesome. If this is where it starts, then this is going to be an incredible road, right? Just everybody I prayed for, just bam, they're healed. Sign me up. Okay, that didn't happen. What is this phase for? Here's what it's for. The fruit, the massive fruit for the very little faith is supposed to spark your faith. That's the point. In fact, God told me after I prayed for that person, he said, Mark, you're not going to see that for a while. He warned me. And I went and prayed for the next year and a half for as many people as I could. And you know how many people got physically healed? Zero. Zero. That was my, that was my stats, you know. Zero for a year and a half. And I prayed again. It's like people were getting worse. And I prayed for them, they'd get sicker. Wasn't good. It's because of this phase two. Phase two, the point is that you grow in your faith. It's acts of faith followed by no confirmations or results. Nothing. Here's how it looks with time with God. Someone says, look, if you would just spend time with God, your relationship with him would grow. So you go and you're like, okay, I'm going to get up early. You set your alarm. You get up early. You carve out 15 minutes. You spend time with God. You have this amazing encounter with the Lord, phase one. And you're like, yes, I'm doing that every morning. And the next morning you get up and you're like, I'm really tired. And you open your scripture and you're like, I got nothing here. And then you do it the next morning and you're like, I think God left. I think God left. I don't... And you do it the next morning, nothing. And you do it the next morning, nothing. Do you see what I'm saying? Or sharing your faith. You sit next to someone on the airport and, and, or the, on the airplane, and you, you have the courage, and, and you're like little, little faith, but you're, I'm, I'm going to step out, and you start this conversation, and then it ends up in an hour, two-hour conversation, and you're sharing your faith. And it's amazing. You're like, I'm going to do that every time I get on the plane from now on, phase one. And you enter into phase two. You know, you sit next to curmudgeon over here, and you're trying to, nothing. You get on a plane again, and nothing, 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 nothing. No confirmation, no results. What's the point? The point is, God doesn't want you dependent on results to be obedient. When he says, do it, do it. He says, pray for their healing, pray for their healing. When he says, spend time with them in the morning, spend time with them in the morning, it's not about the results. It's about your surrender. 
And this is how we grow in faith. And let me tell you how foolish this looks. I can't tell you how foolish it feels to walk up to somebody in Starbucks, pray for their healing, ask them right in the moment, are you feeling anything, man? No. And I'm out. (laughs) Guys, it's going to feel foolish. That's the point. Step into the foolishness. God's calling us to foolishness. And then he leads us into phase three, growing in confidence. This is where acts of faith followed by confirmations but little results. What do I mean by confirmations? What I mean is, so let's say with giving, you take that step of faith, and even though the provision didn't come the second time, it didn't come the third time, you decide to keep giving and keep giving and keep giving. And then all of a sudden, you get a sense that even though you're not seeing like big results of God's provision, you just have a sense like God's in this. Like he's transforming me in this. Or with healing prayer. Like that person might not get healed, but you have a sense like God's presence was there in a unique way. And you're just confirmed that, you know what? I was supposed to pray for them. They didn't get healed, but I know. I'm, I'm growing in my confidence. I know I was supposed to pray for them. I, I could feel God's presence in this. This was confirmation. You guys hearing me on this? It's not necessarily results. It's just there's a sense of like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so he grows your faith, and then he grows your confidence, and then phase four, he grows your fruitfulness. And if you can stay with it, listen to me. Listen to me. Most people have long given up by now. I'm going to say it again. They don't make it to phase four. They're too discouraged. But God, I gave and I gave and I gave, and I still don't feel like you've provided for me financially. But God, I served and I served and I served in this social justice realm, and I didn't have some grand transformation happen in front of me. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and I'm still not seeing people radically healed right in front of me. I spent time every morning, God, and I'm still not having those radical encounters with you that people talk about. And so they stop. Because they don't know this is part of the journey. This is intentional. So I just, I'm pleading with you. Do not stop. Do not stop for any reason. Do not stop. Do not let discouragement stop you. Do not let the lack of results stop you. Whatever you do, here's the deal. The enemy would love for you to stop until you get here. He doesn't want you to get to phase four. He doesn't want you growing in fruitfulness. He will try to stop you at every turn so you don't get here. Because God forbid when the results come, right? Because then it's game on. Acts of faith followed by confirmations and results. You're spending time with him in the morning and you are experiencing his presence. You're serving in the social justice realm. You're seeing lives transformed and changed. You're giving your money and you're seeing God's ridiculous provision come from the most ridiculous places at the most ridiculous time and you fall on your knees and you're like, God, that can only be you. How could you pour out so much blessing on me? And you lay your hands on the sick and they get healed right in front of you and you're like, God, how could you possibly use a sinful person like me to do that? If you just keep going in this foolishness. And what I long for, guys, and I'm just going to tell you, this is my heart. This is my heart. This is my heart. It's phase five. 
the greenhouse effect. I want this with every piece of my being. A life of faith that sparks faith in others. When you start living this thing out, when you start being radically foolish for the Lord, man, it creates a wake. And other people get to follow you. Other people get to ride your wake. And you know what? It's easier for them because of the sacrifice that you make. And they start seeing fruit. And they start living a life of faith because they're drafting off of yours. You know, in the Tour de France, when they're drafting off the cyclists, or in NASCAR, when they're drafting off the cars, like, the person in front is going to have to deal with a whole lot more headwind. But man, if they do, their entire team behind them gets to ride in power. And guys, I have been in the back riding behind other people's weight, behind other people's faith. I have drafted off of other people's faith, and I'm telling you, it's amazing. And as I'm drafting, I'm praying, going, God, one day, get me up front, and I will face the wind, and I'll be a fool, God. Just let me get up there so that others might step out in faith. It's what I want this church to be. All of us, creating a massive wake in Towson that other people get to draft off of. Just a few things as I close up here. Things that hinder godly foolishness. These are the things that are going to come against you. They're going to fight this. The first one is the myth of respectable Christianity. There's a lie that the enemy is going to whisper in your ear. It's going to tell you being a fool is just silly. Don't do that. Come on. Be, the best way to get people to become Christians is they need to see that you're respectable. You don't do crazy stuff like that. You want your office people to think you're respectable. Guys, it is a lie. I'm not saying be foolish for your own sake. But I am saying be foolish for Christ's sake. Guys, we believe that God became flesh, died on the cross, and then rose from the grave. There's nothing respectable about that. Let's get over that so that we can be fools for him. You know, our pride and our self-consciousness gets in the way. It gets in my way, my own pride. Because what don't we all just want? We just want to live life and have just everyone like us and not have anyone think we're weird, right? That's like, we all want that. God, can I just be a normal dude that just drinks coffee in Starbucks? Can I be that guy? But he's called us to more. Yeah, Mark, you can be that guy if you don't want to see anything of the kingdom show up here. But if you want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, then I need you to step out. Our doubts and our fears, right? We doubt, we're afraid. It's a scary thing to be a fool in a world that says you're not supposed to be a fool. We need some courage, right? And here's the thing. We need each other. Man, some people in this church have done some foolish things for Jesus. And I'm like, yes. Thank you, Lord. And it gives me courage to step out on, in my sphere. Man, if they're willing to do that, gosh, I, I got to, you know what I mean? We got to do this together. Encourage one another, strengthen one another. And finally, when we value human wisdom over godly foolishness, it'll paralyze our faith. 
So my question for you this morning is, are you willing to look foolish? And here's what happens when we ask that question. We start thinking, well, am I willing to look foolish? But I want to stop you right there, and I want you to consider this. We are already a fool for someone or something. Let me, let me put it this way. You're already foolish for something. It's not whether you're going to be a fool or not a fool. See, there's Christians dying, literally dying, and being beaten for their faith around the world. What do they make of us being scared to talk about our faith? Do they not think that's foolish? I mean, they can't comprehend why we're so self-conscious when they're giving up their life for Jesus because he's worth it. They can't comprehend why it's so hard for us to be a fool for Christ when they're giving up their families because he's worth it. So we're being a fool for something. The question is, are we willing to be a fool for Jesus? Man, for me, I want that answer to be yes. Worship team, I invite you to come on back up. If you have any questions, you can text my phone. I'll try to get those. It's also a communion Sunday. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to, to come up when that's time. Uh, we have some ushers that are going to come forward and dismiss you by row so that it doesn't become kind of a, a traffic jam up here. Uh, all right, I'm going to pray, and then what I want you to do is just, when the ushers dismiss you, come on, grab a cup, grab a cracker, take it back to your seat, and we will take communion together, as, just all together as a community. So let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, you never ask us to do anything you wouldn't, you haven't already done first. And we remember you in this communion, we remember that you hung on that cross, a fool, mocked, beaten, spit on, that you were so in love with us that you decided to be a fool for us, bleeding and hanging from that cross. And we remember this morning. We remember. And God, with all of our heart, that's what we want to be. God, we want to be fools for you, Jesus. We lay down our pride this morning. We lay down our self-consciousness. We lay down our fears and our doubts. We lay down this lie of respectable Christianity. God, we just want to be who you've called us to be. We want to be people willing to step out in foolish faith. my heart is that we as a church would be a greenhouse. That we would create a wake in Towson. That others would be able to draft off of the faith of the people in this room. So God, we surrender ourselves to you this morning all over again. Uh, we need your help. Make us fools for you. Make us fools for you. In Jesus' name, amen.